the word of God from Romans chapter 5 beginning at verse 18. Then, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness leads to acquittal and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. His ways are past finding out. The Bible is given to us for two reasons, according to the Catechism and our membership covenant. That is to tell us what to believe about God and also what duty He requires of us. Now the problem for us with the Bible is apt to be that there's a difficulty in applying its truth to our daily life. We understand what we're to believe about God and also what our duty is, but to take the doctrines of Scripture and actually fit them into where we are is sometimes a great difficulty. This passage before us, in fact, the whole book of Romans, is a great assistance in that very project. Because this passage particularly focuses on our position in regard to God. Position is the key to Christian performance. I mean by that that the motive that the Bible gives for Christian living is not fear. We preachers may use that motive and that tactic, but it's not generally the Bible motive for Christian living. Nor is it pressure, that is, insistent commands, pressure to do a certain thing. That's not the Bible method of arriving at Christian living. The Bible method is to show us our status, our position, our standing. And having revealed to us where we are in standing, 
then urges us to live out that standing, to be what we already are. And so the great mood of the Bible is not so much imperative, do this, do that, though there is an imperative. The great and prominent mood of the Scripture is indicative. This is what you are. And on the basis of an indicative, the Christian goes forth to live out his own position, his own standing. Now there are two errors that are discussed in this passage which are easily dispensed with when you look at them from the perspective of our position. One is what's sometimes called the antinomian heresy, that is the idea that since our justification is utterly free and by faith alone, and nothing that we have done or can do or ever will do has any effect upon our salvation, that God of himself as a free gift gives this on the basis of faith. Therefore, we may live any way we like and abandon ourselves to sin if we wish. In fact, the more we sin, therefore, the more grace will abound. That's a heresy. You find it in every area and period of the church's life. But of course, once you see the position in which we stand, there is no basis for such an error. The other mistake we're apt to make as we think about justification by faith is that since it is utterly free, and since our conduct has absolutely nothing to do with our justification, the Bible, therefore, has no practical help in causing us to sin any less. It's simply a ticket to heaven, quite unrelated to the way we live daily life. Now, that's an error. But it's an error that arises out of a misunderstanding of justification, and the error is corrected by an understanding of our position, our standing with God. Now, one way to make the difference between position and experience might be this. Picture Paul in the court of Festus and Agrippa and Bernice. All the judges and the observers are uniformed and gaily decked out. Everything is very formal and official. But Paul has just come from the prison. He's in chains. Compared to his surroundings, he's in a much worse position. But what does Paul say to them? I wish that you were as I am. Paul is not looking at his surroundings, at his experience, He's looking at his position in Christ. And knowing that and rejoicing in that, he wishes that these people who were in the much better position would be able to be where he is. And so, you might take another example of the difference between position and experience. Here's a father washing dishes. And after he's finished with that, he has to scrub the floor in the kitchen. He has 
domestic duties to do in his home. And while he's doing these, he may forget that God's given him a position of spiritual leadership in that home. He may feel like and be doing the work of servanthood. That's good. But he must never forget the position which he has and which therefore causes him to keep alert to any spiritual danger which might come in upon his children or on his wife. His experience might belie his position. Agrippa, Paul before Agrippa might seem to contradict between experience and position, but Paul keeps his focus not on the surroundings, but on his standing. Now this is brought out again in the text. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? And if you looked at the Greek sentence underneath this, the we is emphasized. It stands at the beginning of the sentence, and the we is a separate word. Normally in a Greek sentence you couldn't find the word we, it's simply built right into the verb. But in this case the word stands alone, separate and first. And so it ought to be read this way. How can we, who died to sin, still live in it? We, of all people, we with our special understanding, with our, our special position, we who have been given this extraordinary privilege, how can we still live in sin? And he's not pointing to any essential or inherent difference in himself and the Romans from other people, but he's saying that we've been given a standing, and because we have this position, therefore it is impermissible and even impossible that we should continue in sin. For one who has the standing of a Christian, the position of a Christian, to make sin the daily, continuing, persevering style of his life is a slander against Christ and a denial of the faith. It is impossible. Therefore, what this section of the Word of God is calling us to do is to realize the position in which we've been placed, and to live out the Christian life from that perspective. What is that position? This section gives us three descriptions of that position. It says that we are under grace and not under sin. There in verse 21 of chapter 5, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. Sin did reign in death. That is, God allowed sin to reign over us so that he might bring good out of evil for his greater glory. He allowed sin to have the sovereignty. And we knuckled under sin. It had us in a vice grip. We had no choice but to obey it. Everything we did was tinged with sin before we met Christ. And the consequences of sin also lorded it over us, that is, death. Everything that flows from sin is death. Separations between soul and body, between friend and friend, between mind and heart, between man and God, 
All these were death. And sin reigned, bringing forth death. We were in the prison house. The walls were exceedingly thick. We did not even know how thick they were until we wound our way out of the prison house and looked back and saw how bound we were in the clutches of that mastery of human sin. Sin reigned in death. But we died to sin in verse 2 of chapter 6. How can we who died to sin? Now here, the reference is to a very precise moment of dying. The King James is not so accurate here where it says, how can we who are dead to sin? That sounds like we may have gradually overcome it and finally become dead to it. That's not the meaning. The Greek is a particular point of action which took place in past time. It is the moment of our regeneration and our justification that we died to sin. That is, because we were with Christ, sin no longer had a claim upon us. Its impulses, its realm, its grip upon us was broken. And we were brought into the realm of righteousness instead. Out of the clutches of sin's reign, into the marvels of the reign of righteousness, Grace reigned through righteousness. And since we now lived in the realm of righteousness, our destiny was eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Behind the breaking of sin's reign and the giving of the realm of righteousness is the great power of Christian grace. The grace of God is that selfless expression of his love, undeserved by us, but given freely to us. Grace becomes a whole new sovereignty. Grace reigns where sin once reigned over us. And the sovereign grace is a much more powerful master than sin ever was. It brings beneficial, practical results. It is a controlling principle in our life. The sovereignty of grace over our lives enabled Paul to say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We have a hymn in our new hymnal, which I think you've come to love as I am. I, I was a wandering sheep. I did not love the fold, but now I love my shepherd's voice. I love, I love the fold. How can you account for this transformation? Except that to say we have been transferred from the reign of sin to the reign of grace. We're no longer under law in which we are compelled to do what God wants us to do, and we have a fearful obligation to obey. Now we want to obey the law. We look for ways to do it because grace reigns in us. We're no longer under the reign of sin, but under the reign 
of the grace of God. That's our position. We still have a residue of sin in our old nature. But that residue of sin was left there by God so that we would have the exercise and discipline of mortifying it and overcoming it towards sanctified holiness. But now we look at the task of overcoming the residue of sin in our life from the perspective of Christ's attitude towards sin because we're, we have a new position under grace. We look at it from His point of view. We apply Christ's power to that. There is still striving against sin in our life. No question about that. But the striving is a new leverage. It is not fretful, feverish striving in our own strength. We come from the position of being under grace and not under sin. And that gives us a great advantage in overcoming the actual sins of daily life. Now look at the second of these pictures of position. We're under grace, not under sin. And then we're told in this section that we're in Christ, not in Adam. If you look at our text, how can we who died to sin still live in it. You say, how did we die to sin? Well, the only way that we could have died to sin was to be joined to someone who did die to sin. And we're told that Christ died to sin. And therefore, what this great passage is teaching us is that the believer has as his position union with Christ. This is the most glorious, the most helpful, the most positive aspect of your salvation, that you have been joined to Christ. Some of you think of your salvation as only your admission to heaven. It is that. But if you miss the reality of having been united to Christ, you are missing the happiest the fullest part of what it means to be a Christian. Union with Christ is the whole sum of Paul's religion. He had been joined to Christ, and whereas the disciples, as they walked with him in Capernaum and Nazareth and so on, when they were with him, they spoke of being with Christ. They always used the Greek word with when Christ had come to the disciples in the Holy Spirit, they used a new word. They said, now we are in Christ. He has become our environment. We are so joined to him that he's within us and he is our atmosphere. As a bird lives in the air and has air in its lungs, so the believer lives in Christ and has Christ within him. United to Christ, in Christ, is our position. You know what it's like to fall in love? Those two individual selves gradually begin to blend into one new being. And sometimes it's difficult to tell where one ends and another begins. 
because a union has taken place that makes of the two one. If that's true of our limited human personalities, how much truer of Christ's great infinite soul that it can open and welcome a repentant heart and enfold that heart into itself forever. Union with Christ, that's our standing. It is accomplished by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You cannot unite yourself to Christ by all of the meditation that you might try to work up, by all the religious ritual you might try to go through. You cannot be united to Christ of your own effort. The Holy Spirit incorporates a person into Christ. And because it is the work and the gift of God, it is eternal. You can't be in Christ one day and out of Christ the next day. When once you are anchored to Christ by saving faith, and that is always the instrument of the incorporation, it is a permanent bond. Union with Christ begins to say to us how foolish it is to enter into sin. If I am united to Christ, wherever I go, Christ goes. Whatever I do, Christ does. That's why Paul pled with them, when you join yourself to a harlot, you are joining Christ to a harlot. If you engage in unholy activities, if you allow your body or your mind to fraternize with and mingle with human sin, you are bringing Christ into contact with corruption because you are joined to Christ. That's the believer's motive for holiness. Can I bring Christ into this situation? If you can't bring him to it, you have no business there. See, we've been taken out of Adam. Our position was in Adam. We walked with him. We were involved with him in his sin and in his death. We were in his clutches. But mysteriously, graciously, through no effort of ours, the Spirit of God plucked us out of Adam, where the imputed guilt of Adam rested upon our head, and placed us in Christ. And our position now is in him, so that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We are his in him forever and ever. Now are you beginning to see the glory of the Christian's position? He's not under sin, but he's under grace, a whole new environment. He's no longer in Adam, but in Christ. And he has new life not the old. Now that's the meaning of verse 3 here in verse 6, I think. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What does it mean we have been baptized into Christ? The reference here is not water baptism. It is what the scripture calls baptism with the Holy Spirit. Not baptism in the Holy Spirit. That is not, as far as I know, a New Testament phrase. Baptism with the Holy Spirit is. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. And what it says there is, You were all baptized with one spirit into one body, and all caused to drink of one spirit. Baptized with one spirit into Christ. The point is that the Spirit of God caused us to adhere to the whole Christ. He joined us, as only He could do. We couldn't join ourselves to Christ. He did it, and to the whole Christ. We're not simply joined to Christ as shepherd, or as Savior, or as Lord, but all of the acts of Christ become our acts, so that... When Christ died, we died too. We were baptized into his death. He became so close in contact to human sin, taking the likeness of sinful flesh, that Paul could say he became sin for us. Not that he sinned, but he took it so intimately that he became sin for us. And because he did, because he allowed it to play out all its venom against him and vanquished all its hatred under his feet because its awful deadly poison was extinguished in him and he carried it to hell itself. He died to sin. And since we are in him and his acts are our acts, we died also to sin so that sin no longer has any claim, any impulse, any influence over us. Sin is a foreigner to us. It has no part with us. We are dead to it. We were baptized also into his burial. The burial of Christ was the seal of his death. As he was buried and lay in the tomb, the voices outside the tomb had no impact on him. Whatever was happening in the world around Jerusalem those, that day was unheard by him. He was buried. It was the radical break of Christ from this world. And we are baptized into that burial so that we partake with him of this radical break. And when the alluring voices of sin come to us, they have no part in us. We are deaf to them. We are dead to them. Positionally, we have no contact with sin whatsoever. Now this is how we are to see ourselves. Our standing is buried with Christ, dead to sin, utterly out of contact. That's why our standing is shown to be resurrection. 
because as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory, that means the power of the Father, we too have been raised up. All his acts are our acts. We are raised with him into newness of life. Our standing then is the new life, not the old. And the new life is not sentiment in the word of God. In the Word of God, the new life is clearly defined, not vague. Its citizenship is in heaven. If you have new life, you're not of this world. Your citizenship is already over there. You're a stranger here. The new life does not partake of the citizenship of this world. It's very involved in the work of this world, seeking to lift up its level, but its homeland, is heaven. The new life has a walk all its own. It's described in Genesis 17 verse 1 where God said to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. The new life is not just a sporadic something we do for God now and then, an occasional good deed or resistance of a temptation. The new life is a continuing, persevering style of conduct. Walk before me and be blameless. Just because you may have victory here or a good deed there is no sign that you're living the new life. The new life is constant. There are slips, there are stumblings. But the whole direction and continuity of the life is new. It's so new that it has new goals from the old. It has new paths to walk in. It has new principles which must be learned and lived. It has new choices, many more choices than the old. It has, the old has no choice but to sin. It has new leaders to follow, a great cloud of witnesses. It has new companions. I'll give you a hundred mothers and a hundred fathers to walk with you. Why, once you begin to think about the new life, that old life is not worth being called life. Its existence is not life. Because life is joy and peace and power and progress and moral victory. But you won't find any of those in the old. The new life is supernatural. It's life on another plane. It's altogether different. It's release from the shoddiness and failure and ineffectiveness of the old way of sin and death and Adam into a new relation with Christ. The romance and wonder and the stimulus of the fellowship of Jesus. That's the new life. And that's our position. That's where we live. That's our standing. We're reigning in grace. We're living in Christ. Our life has been made new. 
have to take this position as a matter of faith, just like you took Christ by faith. That is, you have to continue to exert the faith that this is my standing in God. When God asked Abraham to believe, he said, Abraham, don't stagger at my promises. But many a Christian looking at what we've outlined today about the standing of the believer will stagger and continue to run his life by his surroundings and his experience and his performance and uh, the dreary round of Christian defeatism instead of living in the light of his position where he's been placed by a sovereign and loving God. Stagger not. This is what Christ has done for you. This is where you live. Now live it out. Be what you are. Live in accord with your standing. With one eye on heaven. Because when we get there, our experience and our position will come together. There'll be no more contrast. Throughout this life, we'll always see a gap between our experience and our standing. But in heaven... They shall be one. Let's pray together. We bless your name, O God, for the marvelous provision you have made for us for righteous living. Not fear or pressure, but a whole new standing from which to perceive our duty and order our days. We ask for faith to see our standing and grace to live it out. Help us to realize in daily life our new status as your children. Deliver us, Lord, in experience as well as in position. From sin, from Adam, from the old life, and from death itself. Through Jesus Christ we ask it. Amen.